Hello, welcome again to a topic podcast with your host Jason Kim for today's second edition. But we're going to talk about the World Cup, and since obviously because it's the theme of uh, well, not theme, rather the season of soccer, I decided to talk about the World Cup because well, a it's the one tournament that everyone knows. You don't need to be a soccer fan to know this thing. And two, it was supposed to be the Euros this summer, all throughout Europe for the first time, and not in one host country, but throughout the continent of Europe with host cities. But that's not happening for obvious reasons. If you're watching this in the future, 2020 was a pretty bad year. <laughs> There's a the pandemic of COVID-19 closed down or shut down pretty much the Olympics in Japan and the Euros and the fill in that soccer international soccer void. I thought we might as well talk about the World Cup. <laughs> so in my hand, I have these magazines that I've surprisingly kept for many years. The first one is a British magazine called 442. And this is the World Cup edition. On the cover, you see, you know, the five superstars of the time for England. You have Wayne Rooney, uh, Rio Fernand, Theo Walcott, John Terry. No Steven Gerrard, no Frank Lampard, which is disappointing. And it is this guy. I have no idea who it is. I know that face. It's a guy. But it's weird because on this magazine, if you see it, it's... Why does everyone have the same shade of skin tone when three of the players in the back are black and the two guys in the front well one guy in the front is white and then john terry off to the uh right is also white i don't know it's a weird observation i just noticed right now but anyway that was 10 years ago they won't do that again today hopefully (laughs) getting into the world cup everybody knows it everybody loves it everybody watches it john oliver did a really cool segment on not just cool, really informative. It's it's not cool. It's actually far more informative. It's something that people need to know about the World Cup. He talks more about the structural corruption of the tournament. A lot of people are often surprised that that exists, but it does. You know, I mean, the Olympics is just as corrupt as the World Cup, uh, the FIFA organization, rather. And knowing all this, why talk about FIFA? Why why even mention it if you know that their actions are dubious at best or even nefarious at, at moments? But it's because it's not so much that we don't watch it for the organization. We watch it for the stories that unravel as the tournament progresses or the stories that could happen, sometimes doesn't happen, but that could happen. For example, 2018, the recent World Cup, no one ever thought that Croatia would make it that far to the final. I saw it coming. I mean, I, I was a huge, as a huge soccer fan, I really like the idea of Croatia making it far. A country of 3 million people make it to a World Cup final. Three million people to be able to produce 23 incredible players. It's their golden generation. Every country has a golden generation. And it's stories like that that attract me to the World Cup. I don't watch it to see Brazil win it again. I don't watch it to watch to see Germany win it. I mean, they always win it, and that's something you just have to accept. They're global superpowers. But I watch it for the smaller guys, for the underdogs. But also for the weird tensions that only seems to manifest in global soccer and in the World Cup where global superpowers don't dictate the game necessarily. I mean, granted, France and, and England are, are influential in the game as a P5 member of the United Nations. They're, they should be dominating, but they're not. They have the best leagues, some of the best leagues in the world, but their national team comes and ebbs and flows. And it's, it's a peculiar thing. You'd expect a country that would make so much money and invest so much time in producing you know, 11 players a year to kill it all the time, but they don't. I really think that's, that's, that's interesting. That's worth exploring. That's worth uh, uncovering. Why is that a thing? And also at the World Cup, another cool thing, if you're a soccer fan like me, you really get to see 
the different philosophies, the different approaches to playing soccer. In soccer, there's a term that's thrown around all the time called philosophy. What's that coach's philosophy? What is this team's philosophy? What is this club's philosophy? And what they mean is it's not like they're fucking like <laughs> fans of Plato or Socrates or whatever, but it's more about... So for example, Spain's philosophy has always been about high technique, being very offensive, attack, but also kind of putting on a show through your technique. Whereas Brazil is pure showmanship. It's about flair. It's about doing tricks. It's about entertaining the crowd. Uh, this is why every neutral soccer fan loves to watch Brazil. That's their identity. Their, um, I think their nickname is the Seleção, or is that Portugal's? Uh, I really shouldn't have fucked that up. <laughs> but if, let's assume it's a Seleção, which I, I think it means the selected or the selection. Whoever's Portuguese, please translate that if there's a comment section on Anchor. <laughs> but for today, I really want to focus on two particular themes that I see happening in the World Cup all the time. And through those two themes, I'll share with you four stories from each World Cup from 2006, 2018. Last episode, I talked about 2002. And I kind of don't want to talk about that because there isn't, it, it isn't the fact that there isn't good stories. It's just, it's too far back in my memory. And I don't feel like if I were to share that stories of what I remembered from 2002 World Cup, I was 10 years old. So what the fuck do I know anyway? But 2006 was the first World Cup where I really started paying attention to the stories that were unraveling through a tournament, even in qualifiers. So the two themes, going back to that, that I'll be ta tackling is global politics being flipped. Whereas a country like the United States, the ultimate, the, the, the hegemon, if you will, of global politics and, and economy and even culture are the legitimate underdogs of soccer. You'd think that anything that the United States touches is gold, but yet in soccer, they seem to struggle. And they kind of don't have a reason why they should be struggling. And there's a lot of internal problems, and we'll get to that. But that's the one thing I like watching. And I like watching to see how well the United States could do, for example. Or to watch a country like Costa Rica make it to a quarterfinal in the 2014 World Cup. That's, that was fun. That was a lot of fun to watch. And another theme that I really want to also focus on, and I think is one of the main reasons why people really watch it, is the theme of hope and redemption. It keeps coming up at every World Cup. There's some player who needs to redeem himself or herself if you're watching a women's game. Or there's some country that needs to redeem themselves. And you see it at every World Cup where they remember the mistakes of the past or the controversies of the past that has tainted their careers. And the World Cup is the perfect opportunity to clean that slate. Those are the two themes. Global politics flipped, equaling underdogs, and also the theme of hope and redemption. But before we get into that, I'm just going to give you a very brief introduction of if for, for someone who completely knows nothing about the World Cup, I'll just explain how it works very briefly, break it down. It'll be a void of emotional co component. It's just really the function of how this tournament works. So it happens every once every four years, and countries bid to host the World Cup. This bidding process is always a very big deal. It's always about what do you offer, why is your uh, country attractive, for our sponsors, that's the World FIFA. Like, why is why would Budweiser, McDonald's, and Coca-Cola be interested in investing in our tournament, uh, our being FIFA, and you as a host country, you need to convince us that you have the infrastructure to do that, to keep the players safe, the staff safe, and the fans safe. And it often comes at a cost of the local population. Again, if you want to know more about that, please watch the John Oliver a bit on the 2014 World Cup. He does it excellently. It really shows the dark side of the organization. But anyway, so back to how it works. 
So every four years, new country, and you bid. And these countries are responsible of either upgrading the stadiums to FIFA standards or making new stadiums from scratch. If you're having alarm bells in your head, you should. The World Cup only hosts about 32 countries. Well, now they change the rules. In 2022, they'll host, I think, 48. Or is maybe that'll be for the one in Canada, United States, and Mexico in 2026. But let's say for now it's 32. That's a traditional way. It's been 32 teams, and every single country on the planet competes and qualifies to get into that 32 spot. The real World Cup, as a lot of fans would say, happens at the qualifiers. And once you make it through the qualifiers, which is divided through continents, so Central and North America have their own federation called CONCACAF. South America is CONMEBOL, which is South America. Africa have their own, AFCON. Europe is UEFA, which is the biggest uh, federation, obviously. They send the most teams because, you know, the European teams are the most entertaining. And then there's Asia, which is merged with the Oceania continent. So... Asia and Oceania, or Australia, whatever the new term is now, they had their own federations, but now they've merged it together because Australia kept winning all the time. Out of 32, there's groups. Every group, there's four teams, and the top two teams make it to the next round, the round of 16. And then from round of 16, you have quarterfinal, semifinal, then the final. And it's a one-off tournament, and it's a lot of fucking fun. I love the World Cup. I, I always look forward to it. It's the one thing that I literally feel the world unified. I was in Italy when 2018 World Cup happened. I've been to Italy before that, and it was the first time I've ever seen local Italians and just tourists just getting along and watching the game together. Like there'll be a group, there'll be a guy who speaks Italian, another person who speaks Russian, and another person who only speaks English, and they'll just be sitting at a table. They don't know each other, and they're just having a good time watching two countries that they've never visited or never heard of play against each other. It makes you forget about the bullshit of today's time for a moment, where you really see the best qualities of human beings on a screen where you see fans getting along, you see players getting along, even though it could get feisty at times among the fans and the players. But generally speaking, the vibe and mood has always been celebratory. That's the one thing I absolutely love about the World Cup. It's celebration. And I invite all of you to really watch the World Cup with a neutral eye. You might even appreciate it a little more. But now steering towards the theme of global politics and sort of how it does not mimic soccer, it's... It's one of the weirder things that technically doesn't make sense. How a country becomes a soccer powerhouse like Brazil. You need funding. You, you always need money. You always need money to invest in youth academies. You invest in the local uh, leagues, in clubs, and youth development. And those, those things, yeah, like I said, requires a lot of money, a lot of infrastructure. But then when you think about infrastructure in that way, you'd imagine a country like the United States and Canada just nailing it. Because, well, I mean, we're G20 countries. We're... Were an example. The United States is the global example of democracy. The Canada is the global example of what the United States could have been, I guess, for some, but it's, we're not good. And a lot of people say, well, Canada's a hockey country. That's really the main reason why Canada is a hockey country. The United States is far too busy with basketball, baseball, football. I mean, like a million different sports. Arguably, competitive esports is probably more popular than soccer in the States. It like probably just overtook it in the last three years, really. And yet, the United States have been, has been playing soccer for the last 100 years. I mean, the Scottish immigrants that came to, Scottish and Irish immigrants that came to New England brought the sport with them. And there was a legitimate old school core in the 60s of soccer players in New England where it looks like and felt like, like British style soccer. But if that foundation was there, why did the United States not win a World Cup yet? A lot of it is corruption. <laughs> a lot of it is corruption. And a lot of it is there's a lot of uh, bias towards American athletes, American soccer players, also Canadian soccer players. 
I remember growing up when you'd see an American, the way people talk about American soccer players was, oh, you know, they have the physicality, but they don't have the technique. They don't have the mindset. They're pretty much calling them stupid. They're, they're soccer stupid. That was essentially what they're saying. They, the United States seems to wear that with pride and, and they, they, they take that in their stride. Because if you know anything about the American spirit, it's something, it's, it's, they don't give up. They, they don't back down easily. Uh, that's the one thing I find very endearing about Americans is every challenge needs to be met. Every obstacle needs to be climbed. Granted, the last few years in the United States, some people would say otherwise, but the America that I knew growing up as a Canadian has always been about that, meeting the obstacle, meeting the challenge and fighting it. And you saw that with the United States in the 2014 World Cup when they played Belgium. That was the most entertaining game one of the most entertaining games I've watched in the, in the 2014 World Cup. It was just back and forth. No one believed the United States. They're like, these guys are going to get wrecked by Belgium because Belgium was just producing this golden generation. <laughs> they lost, and, but no one was upset. They, it was almost of a point of pride saying, we can hang in with the big boys. And Tim Howard, the goalkeeper of the United States at the time, he recorded a World Cup record of making 16 saves in one game out of like, I don't know, 25 shots do you know how much of an incredible record that is for any goalkeeper of any standard that's 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 impressive despite that performance in 2014 world cup there's still i the respect is only coming now and i feel like it's about 10 years too late for the united states but granted there's not been an now there's been a flood of american exports to europe christian pulisic Gio Reyna. Timothy Weah, who, who else was a, there's a, a Miazga, some like random center back who plays for Chelsea. The fact is that there's, I've just named you four players and all of them are very highly hyped and rated. Maybe not Miazga, but, but Christian Pulisic, Gio Reyna, and Timothy Weah. And then there's uh, Adams. Yeah, those four guys. They're young players, but, but the Europeans are not coming around to the idea that these Americans could play. And it says a lot. Uh, it says a lot about American progress. And then it throws in the question, are they still underdogs? I would say so. I would say, yes, they're still underdogs. Um, they're no longer, I won't consider United States underdogs unless they've effectively beat Mexico regularly. And they're able to match up against the countries like Argentina, Brazil, Uruguay. If they could compete with those guys and still be a serious contender, then I would say, yeah, they're not underdogs. And just to remind you, so a lot of people say that some some people point out and would say, well, England, France are technically superpowers within soccer, which is also true. They're not as successful as they should be. For those who don't know, there are five countries that I think every social uh, political scientist would argue that those five countries are the dominating five countries of global politics, that being... United States, England, France, China, Russia, the P5, the five nuclear holding superpowers of the world that dictate not just politics, but economy and culture and, you know, all the important stuff. Very Game, game of Thronesy, if you will. But yet they are not the best in soccer. China's garbage. As a Korean guy, I'm just telling you, China just fucking sucks at soccer. <laughs> it's like every time Korea or Japan plays China, you know who's going to win. It's either Korea or Japan. I'd be more interested to watch North Korea play China because they're both shit. And I want to see how that works out. And I think China would still win. But to be fair to China, they're investing a lot in soccer right now. 
but they're still serious underdogs. They've only been to one World Cup, and that was in 2002 World Cup. A country like China, 1 billion people, you'd think they would be able to produce a decent team. No, because they're far more focused on the Olympics. And with Russia, same thing. I, I grew up playing soccer with Russians, and they've always been really solid, and I don't understand why Russia doesn't have a good enough team. To be fair, 2018 proved otherwise. They made it to a semifinal. They beat Spain. I mean, this, the Spain team was, is really fucking good, and they beat them, and I was so surprised. And then when you see it, England and France, England invented a sport, and France has just produced my favorite player of all time, Zinedine Zidane. I, I look up to that man almost like a god. I've seen him twice in person, and I thought I, I nearly had a heat stroke. I just realized that that's what it means to be a fanboy, and I guess that's what being a simp is like. But anyway, <laughs> I know. The prestige of England and France doesn't come with their national teams per se. It comes with their leagues. You want to play in France. You want to play in England. That's a, that's your, that's a pathway to greatness and to legendary status. But somehow, England doesn't seem to produce. They've only won one World Cup, England. And France won it twice. Whereas Brazil won it five. Germany won it four. Argentina won it three. Uruguay won it twice. Italy won it four times. I mean, the, the list is very limited. And yet, and Spain won it once. And... Yet you, you expect countries like England and France to win it more, especially England being the inventors of the sport. But the more you dig into those problems, the, it almost seems to be that some of the domestic issues of these countries seem to come out in their national teams. For example, France, it's, there's a lot of systemic racism in France in general. I mean, if you're Arab or African descent, it's not a good time for you. That seems to happen in soccer, although in 98 they said that they nicknamed the team Beurre Blanc and Black, which is like, this is the French team of all French citizens, no matter what ethnicity, so long as you're French, you have to play for the French national team. And you see it, like the team is always very multicultural, but for some reason, there seems to be some tension, underlining tension within the French Football Association and also within the country's political structure seems to influence what's happening with this team at times. And I feel like they should have won four World Cups by now, but they've only won it twice, to be fair. They, both times they won it, they deserved it. And with this recent win in 2018, all you saw was not so much of outside of sports, outside of sports media. All you saw was people saying, or raising the question of systemic racism of how, if you look at France, it's all majority African and uh, African and Arab. I mean, maybe, maybe it's just my observation and not so much the actual fact, but what I'm seeing it's with the French team, there's always some sort of controversy and it always has to do, it always has this undertone of race or racism in it. And it really, I don't get it. Part of, you know, like you hear the debate about laicite where it doesn't matter what your religion or ethnicity is, so long as you're a French citizen, have French values, you're French. I don't think Western audience, especially the English world, understands French secularism. Trevor Noah did this famous thing where he said, you know, Africa won the World Cup when France won the World Cup. And a lot of French people were offended, saying, no, we've won. Those men are French. They're French citizens. They're not African. They're French. And then, so that therein lies, therein lies a tension where the American audience, specifically the American audience, and also the British and Canadian for sure, but the American audience being the biggest market, they saw this and said, why won't you recognize their ethnic backgrounds? Why can't you call them French-African or whatever? But it's because there's a total failure of understanding that French secularity is completely different from American secularity or English secularity. English secularity is your identity could be shared and expressed 
in in the public space. The public space is yours as a, as a citizen. Freedom of speech is a diversity. It's a, it's a melting pot, as I say. But France is kind of flipped, where we're all French. If we keep putting these adjectives, if you will, or these uh, pronouns, you're going to create more division and separation. That it will lose. You'll lose that fabric of that the French fabric of society. You'll lose that. And that's where the French got offended, saying, no, these, these, these men are French. Yes, they might be immigrants, but they're French. They were born and raised in France, educated in French. They speak French. And again, it proves the point where it seems that French social issues that, every, that the entire world knows about, it seeps into soccer again. And when France has won the World Cup, sometimes I wonder, did they even have a moment to enjoy it? And the truth is they did, because they didn't give a fuck what the Americans were saying. They just won the World Cup. Why would they care? And... Deservedly so. If you're in Montreal when France won the World Cup, you'd forget that you're in Montreal because there's so many, so many Parisians and French people that moved into the plateau. The plateau has become Petit Paris, in my opinion, which is not bad. It's just uh, I'm not used to it. I mean, growing up in Montreal my entire life, I've never met a French person until I got to university. I never met someone from France till I got till I was like 19. So with England, for example, the English. Their problem is that they're too fucking English. And it's, and it's, it's, no one really understands why England hasn't won as much as they should have. It's only in the last two years that these old, older, or these recently retired English players came around and started talking about this. And I think it was good that they talked about why they kept failing. 2006 was supposed to be England's year. It was, it was a superstar team of Rio Ferdinand, Gary Neville, Phil Neville, Paul Scholes, Frank Lampard, Steven Gerrard, Wayne Rooney, David Beckham, fucking Michael Owen. I mean, you have other bigger players, but already those names should make you salivate to know that you're this shit's this shit's yours. You won it. This this 2006 England team should have won, but they didn't. From 2006 to like last year, people were constantly debating how come England didn't win. We invested so much money, so much time. The English league is the best league in the world. Why can't we win at the fucking game that we invented? And the, those ex-players, when talking about it, they came to the conclusion is that there's too much tribalism within the team, that the failures of England had nothing to do with the fact that they couldn't play. It had everything to, to, to do with the fact that there was too many beefs among players, that players of Manchester United wouldn't really chill with the players in Chelsea or the, the Arsenal players want to hang out with the Liverpool players, you know, stuff like that. And there was all these... Um, these inter-club tensions that they would play each other at least four times a year. There's a real emotional component within the locker room where these guys were just, were not meshing according to the interviews that I've seen. And that makes sense because when you see that 2006 team, there's no reason why they should not have won. They should have won. They had everything going for them. They had a great coach at Fabio Capello, although I'm not a fan of his, but he's objectively a good coach, but they didn't win. A lot of people say they should have the, the, the golden fucking midfield trio of Paul Scholes, Frank Lapart, Steven Gerrard, they didn't work that out. Uh, a lot of people say because the team wasn't built around those three, they lost, which I would incline to think so. But, you know, it is what it is. I mean, they learned from their mistakes, and it's a point they learn now because that conversation they had, I believe, had a direct influence on how they performed 2018. 2018 England team is a completely different team. It's a young team that you could tell they all get along. You could tell that they all enjoy each other's company. Whereas 2016, it felt too professional the way they conduct themselves on the field. Whereas in 2018, that England team was a, was a legitimate team. That's what the English were waiting for for a long time. Again, if you're a soccer neutral or don't watch soccer, I strongly encourage you 
to go to watch soccer in England. It's borderline fun and scary at the same time, and it's worth it. It's so much fun. And when you see the England fans and when they're celebrating England, you get a sense that this sport means a lot more to them than, I mean, it means a lot to everyone, but you could get a sense that English identity seems to be built around rugby and soccer, that it almost defines their especially for men, it defines their society and who they are and how they compose themselves and how they go about themselves in public in some ways. I mean, again, I'm probably reading way into this, but that's what I'm seeing among the football fans, the soccer fans. But that being said, like, I mean, you have England and France, the two of the five superpowers of the world, and they're doing okay. They've won World Cups, but trouble seems to always seep in. When you look at other countries that have a very, a smaller political and economic footprint than those five. I mean, they're killing it. Italy, famously broke country for decades, is still the best soccer team, best soccer country in the world. Spain, same thing, another broke European country, although I think they're repaying their debts. Well, I don't know what, because of COVID, I think that probably fucked everything up. But anyway, they've won one World Cup, but everybody wants to play in Spain. Everybody wants to be a Spanish player. They've defined a generation of soccer style. Spain has completely revolutionized the game in the period of 2008 to 2016. Some people would argue otherwise, but I would argue that, let's say, 6 to 8 year period of 20, 2008 till 2014 or 2016, they've, they've dominated the game. They've re-changed and re-scoped how the game can be played or how it should be played. And the English haven't done that in a long time, or nor the French, but the Spanish did. And then if you go further south... You have Brazil, Uruguay, and Argentina, among them 10 World Cup titles among those three countries alone. That's impressive. These are countries that you don't necessarily think of economic powerhouse. Regionally, they occupy a tremendous economic political space in South America, but globally speaking, they're reduced to stereotypes. You know, Brazil, you think of dancing and happy people and, and cocktails. In Argentina, you think about tango and, and, and steak. Oh, I could go for steak. And Uruguay, you don't know anything about Uruguay. <laughs> so, I mean, you know what I mean? Like, it's that, what does that tell you about these three countries being the most dominant in the sport? And a lot of that has to do with the way the game was introduced to them. The game seems to be made for them. In Brazil, the reason why they're so good, it has not so much to do with the infrastructure put in place by the Brazilian Soccer Association, but it has much to do with the culture of Brazil, where it's summer 24-7, A, and B. They play so many variations of the game that you're constantly building up technical ability based on the environment you're playing the game in. So if you're playing futsal, like let's say in a basketball gym, futsal, the ball is smaller and heavier. The rules are a little different. But that game requires so much close control and fast pace and rapid thinking. And you have street soccer, same thing, but there's so many bumps and, you know, no real boundaries that you need to improvise as you play. Those two things completely influence the way Brazilians play the game. That's why Brazilians are so much fun to play because they do all those fancy tricks because they, that's what they do growing up. That's just what they do. They do it to entertain. It's like if you went to Rutgers Park in New York City and you watch those dudes play basketball, they're trying to embarrass each other, but they're also very aware that people are watching because it's Rutgers Park. So they want to entertain you. Except now imagine Brazil, but every single soccer player in Brazil is trying to do that. You know what I mean? Like you get this very intense environment which creates diamonds. Brazil creates diamonds when it comes to players. Like my favorite Brazilian player of all time is Kaká. Best name ever. 
but he's um he kind of stands out with the rest of the Brazilian team because when you look at a Brazilian team, it's all mostly working class. It's all people who came from a poor or working class background. You know, typical story. I was a poor boy in the favelas, playing soccer, working on the side, and then a professional club found me at 14, and I started playing for them. The youth academy made my way up, became pro, became the best player on the planet. That's kind of the typical Brazilian story. But Kaká is a is a little different because he's white and middle class, and it's uh it stands out because it's um I don't like him obviously I obviously don't like him because he's white but it was because it's the way he plays I enjoyed his style of soccer because it was unlike the rest of the Brazilian team and a lot of ways it was very technical very smart but you know like the player that everybody wants on their team there was an elegance to his game that I never seen before and I just became sucked into the way he played but that that being said I mean you're seeing global politics being flipped United States are now the underdogs. Russia is the, an underdog. China is non-existent. England, France are underachieving. But then when you see other countries that might be superpowers regionally, but politically they occupy a, a bit of a smaller space, they kill it. They kill it in the game. And you only really get to see that in, in soccer. I mean, if you look at the Olympics, it's the usual suspects all the time. You know, at Summer Olympics, if you were to put your money on who would accumulate the most gold in the Olympics, it's always going to be Russia, United States, China, always between those three, because those countries invest a lot in the Olympics. But also they have a culture of Olympic sports, whereas soccer wasn't there. It was there, but it wasn't. It didn't occupy the minds of the people. So that's one of the reasons why these big countries that should be achieving, should be killing it, don't. But whereas England, France, they've had the culture, they've had the sport. It is the number one sport in England, France. But like I said earlier, it seems the problem seems far more internal, internal strife or or even certain social issues within the country might even transcend onto the team. Like I said earlier about racism and racial uh, systemic racism in France, for example. Just to share another quick story about France was in 2012, the coach at the time I'm forgetting his name because I honestly didn't really care about him. He, no, it wasn't him. It was Didier Deschamps, the current team. He was accused of being racist towards Algerians because he had no Algerians on the team. I think it's somewhat unfair to call Didier Deschamps racist. I don't think that was his intention. I mean, he played alongside Zinedine Zidane, the greatest Algerian ever. But it was something worth pointing out because some people say, oh, you know, these are people who are just crying, complaining about the smallest of things. But this is a legitimate concern that people of France have about Algerians, Algerian exclusion of society, Algerians being discriminated and being put in the banlieue, the ghettos outside of Paris, you know? And we watch our soccer team because we wanted to reflect our people. And without having Algerians in the French national team, that's a big deal. You know, you're talking about, a, I would argue, what, maybe 20, 15% of ethnic minorities are maybe Algerian. I, I'm just putting a number out there, but... If that number turns out to be true, I wouldn't be surprised. And to the fact that you had Ben Arfa, Benzema, well, Benzema couldn't play because some sex tape scandal, that nice nah, fucking idiot. And Samir Nasri. Those are the three that people thought they would make it on team, but they didn't. And Nasri has an attitude problem. Benzema got caught up with some legal case. Uh, so that's why those two were out. And then Ben Arfa, just his performance dipped. And some people are saying, well, you know, that's, it's because they're Algerian. And then if you want to say pragmatically, as a coach, you're saying, well, no, there's too much controversy. There's too much problems with these players. I can't have them on a team and affect the dressing room. The counter argument to that would be, 
oh, it's, you're just saying that because they're Algerian. This is going to go back and forth. This is going to go every day. This is going to go on forever. But, but I mean, I guess you can't really complain because they did win the World Cup 2018. But at the same time, not having Algerians on a team is, uh, I wouldn't say concerning, but it is alarming. It is kind of surprising. But so long as you get to build a team, a winning team, that's all that matters at the end, right? But for the fans, they don't, they see it as that, but at the same time, they don't see it as that because they legitimately want to see themselves on that team. And that's one of the main reasons why a lot of people like watching the World Cup because that's the dream to, to play the World Cup. You don't want the money. The money they pay you in the FIFA World Cup is shit anyway compared to what the clubs would pay you. But it's, it's the honor and the prestige of saying, I represented my country. I got the stand for the national anthem before I played the game and win it for my country. And I mean, that's a huge ego boost, right? And also, it says a lot about your career. That is the pinnacle of your career. You could play one game, just one game in the World Cup for five minutes. That's still enough for, for a lot of guys. And that's also part of the culture. In the United States, if they had that culture in the United States, they would win the World Cup in the next 12 years, in my opinion. And I think they're starting to develop that culture of the World Cup means everything among the soccer fans in the United States. And it's only a matter of time until the Americans show up and people get upset saying, no, the Americans ruined the sport. No, no, no. But, you know, deal with it. Stop being a bitch. But what also makes it the most fun is as these superpowers are being flipped, these positions are being flipped, you create this new world that doesn't mimic the actual world. That's the most fascinating thing I find. As someone who enjoys plays, playing video games, that's kind of what the World Cup creates, the space of some of these global political rules are thrown out the window. It really comes down to meritocracy. Who is the best team on the pitch? Imagine the United States played Iran at the World Cup today and Iran won. Americans would probably just say, fuck it, it's soccer. We don't watch it. The Iranians would say, this legitimizes who we are as a people and our plight against you Americans. It might not come out explicitly like that, but I'm telling you, people would feel that. That would be felt. That would be real. Because sports make dreams come true for older men. It's funny that I say this because in the women's game, those dynamics aren't flipped. Uh, the United States is the best team in the women's game. Canada is among the best. The Netherlands is very good. Spain's good. France is killing it now. Brazil, the Brazilian women's team has yet to win a women's World Cup. Fun fact, the United States has won three times. So again, with the another fascinating thing about the United States when it comes to World Cup and them being underdogs is they have 350 million people at their disposal. There's got to be a few soccer talents in that 350 million, and there are. There's a lot. But the problem with the United States, and the one of the main reasons why they're underdogs, so is Canada, is in North America and Canada and the United States, we don't have the culture of the World Cup means everything. We don't have that sense of... Um, there's a lot of national pride in both countries, but when it comes to the World Cup, it fails. Canada's pride when it comes to sports is in the Winter Olympics. I mean, the Winter Olympics gets the most incredible hype in Canada. It makes you feel, it makes you feel proud to be Canadian, but then you realize you don't really play any of those sports. And, and the only one that I really watch during the Winter Olympics is ice hockey and speed skating, maybe figure skating because Koreans are really good at that one. And, but that's it. Maybe snowboarding. You know, I watch snowboarding, but like, I, don't, I don't care if it's on, it's on. Like, I'm, I'm not going to go out of my way, clear my schedule to watch snowboarding. But soccer, I do. And if you look at other countries, again, going back to that time when I was in Italy, people who own businesses put the TV on to watch any World Cup game. They, Italy wasn't even the World Cup that year, which is also blasphemy that Italy doesn't make it to a World Cup. 
So going back to the one of the main problems the United States has, if you want to see it as a problem, is that a lot of their best talents are of ethnic are ethnic minorities. So for example, if you I've been asked this question by my friends. If let's say I was a professional player, would I play for Team Canada or Team Korea at the World Cup? And that's a real question that these professional athletes need to ask themselves. Do I want to play in a World Cup and have a high chance of qualifying a World Cup by playing for let's say Korea, but I don't my my Korean's limited. I don't feel very Korean. But then if I deal with those social things, I will play at the World Cup. Or do I play for Canada who might not make it a World Cup, but I've grown up with these soccer players. I know who they are. You know, I probably went to school with one of them. The social dynamic is much better, but competitive dynamic is still up in the air. And that's what a lot of these American soccer players are asking themselves is, for example, if let's say you're a Mexican-American born in L.A., and you had an opportunity to play for United States, the senior team for the United States, or you play for the Mexican team, who would you play for? It's a, and that's a real question because the United States and Mexico are very big soccer rivals. And the Mexicans, I love watching Mexico play soccer. It's the fans that make the game much better. Not to say they play like shit, but it's the fans that injects that passion that the team needs. And it's a lot of fun to watch the Mexican team. The United States is... The fans are fun. <laughs> they're, they're, they're not as uh, creative. But them being underdogs, you always want to see them do well. So going back to that question, imagine you're a player with tremendous confidence and you know that I can play for Mexico, but I might not be their star player. Or I could play for the United States that I was born and raised in LA and be the star player, potentially be the star player. Who would you go for? Would you listen to your ego or would you listen to your pragmatic self and go with the route of winning? A lot, a lot of things to consider. And that's one of the reasons why the United States kind of struggles to keep their domestic talent in the country, in the team, rather. France doesn't really have that problem because you want to play for France. England doesn't really have that problem because you want to play for England. And also for a lot of these guys, the playing for the World Cup is also an audition. If you play well in the World Cup, a major club will come knocking at your door and say, hey, I just negotiated with your agent. I bought you for $30 million. You're coming to play with me. Your salary is 40000 a week. You're set. Because you had one good game at the World Cup. That shit happens all the time. So you have to consider that as well. How do you want to push your, the trajectory of your career? So there's a lot of delicate decision-making that needs to be done with very heavy impact to your personal life. James Rodriguez had one great World Cup in 2014 and has spent a lot of time in Madrid injured and partying. Although you see those flashes of like the player that he was in 2014, but now he's like, people forget that he plays. And he's still legitimately a very good player, but he doesn't get enough game time. I don't know how that happens, but it just happens. <laughs> you know, it's one good game and you, know, you play for the richest club in the world. And that's the same problem with Canada. Canada, we, we can't keep our domestic talent. Our best Canadian produce is Owen Hargreaves. And he played for Bayern Munich and Manchester United but decided to play for England over Canada. And I think he said it honestly, saying, why, why would I play for Canada? I mean, they barely qualify. And also, he's like, he was saying, my parents are English. I felt more English than Canadian. So I play for England. But I have hope for Canada. Because of someone like Alfonso Davies, he gets his first professional contract with Vancouver Whitecaps at 15 years old. And he gets bought by Bayern Munich for $35 million. And plays for Bayern Munich for his team. And he's... He just won Rookie of the Year in Germany. And he's already being touted as the next best left back in the world. And he's only 19. 
and he's a refugee kid from Liberia. His, you know, born in a refugee camp in Ghana. His parents were refugees from Liberia, moved to Ghana in a refugee camp. Then they finally got uh, refugee status in Canada. They said, I think that his Alfonso Davies' dad said, we had an opportunity to move to Canada. He was saying, I knew nothing in Canada, but fuck it, we have to go. They moved to Edmonton, make a life. He gets good, gets founded. Now is considered already at the age of 19, one of the best defenders in the world. And he chose to play for Canada. He could have played for Ghana or Liberia. If he played for Ghana, that would have been incredible. But he decided to play for Canada. And I think he said this in his words. He's like, you know, I have to. This country has given me everything. This country has saved my family's life. And also, we're going to be host one of the co-hosts of the 2026 World Cup with the United States and Mexico. So let's hope our team gets good by that point. Uh, right now, we're just okay. Uh, there's one, there's like three Quebecois players, which makes it... Um, doesn't make it better, but it makes it good. <laughs> and same with the women's team. The women's the Canadian women's team has been not declining, but hasn't hit the same stride in previous years. I mean, Christine Sinclair is getting older, and Huitman looks pretty good. But that's it. I mean, there's there's no real standout players coming out of the Canadian women's team. Maybe that's me. Maybe I don't spend enough time watching women's games, and I'm very open to to being wrong on that part. But that's another thing I think it's worth exploring, especially if you're a Canadian. Definitely watch the women's, the women's team first and then the men's team because the women's team is fantastic. They're fun to watch. They're great. There's good camaraderie among the team. It's, you just enjoy yourself watching the women's team. And since I'm known to women's soccer, I really don't care for the debate about I don't watch a women's game because of this and this and that. I was like, oh, listen, like you don't watch a women's game, you don't watch a women's game. I don't need your reason. Just don't be a bigot. You know? <laughs> They'll say some shit like, well, women aren't really that good. Okay, but what do you mean by that? I, I see as a player myself and seeing the way they play, the technical ability is just as good as the men. It's just that they're not as strong. That's just, that's the difference. And to me, when you remove that physical component and just see technique on its own, that is something to watch. That is something, it's fun. And also the women's game is much younger than the men's game. So give them the time and air to grow and come into their own. It's only, the professional game for women's only been like 20 years, I think. So, you know, whereas the men's game has been, 60, 70 years professionalized. So like, come on, let's, let's give them a break. In the beginning of this podcast, I spoke about two themes, global politics being flipped and hope and redemption. I spoke a lot right now about global politics being flipped and the creation of underdogs where you at least likely expect it. The, the themes of hope and redemption in soccer seems to resonate not just in the World Cup, but also in clubs, because this is the competition where heroes are made and heroes are forgiven, or rather villains have are become heroes. And you have this almost as someone also as someone who studied religion, the way they talk about these players during the World Cup is almost how religion will talk about some prophets or some major characters. Whereas like he did this, she did that. Oh my god, great. We're a chosen people, you know? And Brazil for sure has a complex of we're the chosen soccer people. And I think that that hit them hard on the ass in 2014. Actually, yeah, let's get into that. So for the 2014 World Cup was a special year. And it hits on hope and redemption, the story. Brazil was going through a tough time, economically and politically. 2010 World Cup was a failure. 2006 was a failure. This was arguably the best team, one of the best Brazil teams one would ever watch, but they played bad. And 2014 was finally, soccer was finally going back to its spiritual home, which was Brazil. Yeah, the first ever World Cup that Brazil has won was 1950 or 55, I think. No, it was 50. That kind of cemented 
Brazil as a powerhouse, as a country to watch. And that's where, you know, you get people like Pele and oh, there's this other Brazilian player, but he, I think his name is Aristotle. I really hope his name is Aristotle. That's a name of a, of a, <laughs> of a, of a philosopher. And so 2014 was supposed to justify and kind of galvanize the country back together. There's been this corruption scandal with the then president at the time, Rousseff, I think that was her name. There was that. And there was so much money investment to building new stadiums that none of the Brazilians have asked for. We're like, we don't need these new stadiums. Yeah, we're a soccer country, but we don't sit 70,000 people in this town. This, this soccer club only sits 10,000 people. Manaus being a perfect example of they built a stadium in the middle of the Amazon and now it's only used as a bus park, like where buses are being parked. It's a waste of fucking money. And so all these things are happening. All this pressure is happening. And all this extra pressure socially, politically, economically is being put onto the team, onto the Brazilian national team. And you're playing at home. I can't imagine the mental stress that these guys have went through to know that every mistake is seen with a magnifying glass. Every wrong pass, you'll get booed at by your own fans. Every shot you miss, people will get upset. You're playing for your life. And that's, that's, that's a kind of pressure I'll never understand. And I really hope I'll never understand that pressure because that's, that's scary. And and if you don't know the story, lo and behold, the mighty Brazil, what arguably a very good team, they're missing a striker, but still a good team, lost 7-1 to Germany. Ouch. That hurts. Germany is, that was the year when Germany won its uh, fourth World Cup, and uh, deservedly so. They, they've been, they're the most famous underachievers, uh, always making it to the final, semifinal, but always losing. And here they are. They destroyed this Brazil team, scoring four goals in the first half. I never seen. I never seen so many people cry at the same time. It was um, really funny to watch. To be honest, it was pretty funny to watch, but also really sad. And I remember seeing that. And I'm like, this is this is not going to go well. This is this is not good for Brazil. And and I started feeling bad because I actually started meeting. Brazilians and the restaurant I work at, there's a lot of people who work at the Brazilian consulate nearby and they come down for lunch. Before the World Cup, I asked them, are you excited about the World Cup in Brazil? They said, yes, we're so excited because we need this. We need this to feel good about being Brazilian again. We need this to trust our government to, you know, make ourselves feel good. We've been having, we're going through a rough patch and, and there's that hope, that really strong sense of hope that, okay, if Brazil wins this World Cup, we're going back on track and we're going to move away from all the bullshit. And then after they lost 7-1 to Germany, and then they lost to the Netherlands 3-0 in the bronze medal game, I asked the same consulate members and said, how do you feel now? Well, I'm not, I, didn't, I didn't say like that to rub it in, but I mean, I was like, you know, like, how, how are you feeling? I never seen someone hold in a cry that perfectly. You could see the sadness and the disappointment in her eyes. And she was just saying, we, we really needed this. And this was her words. She said, I feel like everything we've done was just a complete waste. This is fucking pointless. Why did we do this? And I was like, oh, man, that, I've never seen that. Brazil got no redemption. And Brazil has yet to get its redemption. In all honesty, I don't think Brazil will win a World Cup anytime soon. The other countries are getting way too good. Brazil is getting too bogged down with a lot of controversies. But who knows? It's soccer. You never know who wins. On the topic of just hope, if you want to talk about story of hope, you have to look at Croatia 2018. Croatia 2018, 
is probably my favorite soccer story, underdog story of all time. As I said earlier in the podcast, there are a population of 3 million people, and they produce 23 gems of players. Luka Modric, Antje Rebic, Mandzukic. There's going to be a lot of itches. Mandzukic, Modric, Rakitic, Rebic, Perisic. Okay, who else is not an itch? Oh, Lovren Evita. Okay, now let's make it easier to remember all those names. But these were guys, individually, they were good talents. They were very good. Luka Modric and Rakitic and Mandzukic being the best, and Perisic being the best out of that group. But you, when you watch Croatia, you saw a team. You saw a team that knew what the odds were. They knew what the stakes are, and they went all in. On it. They went all in. They knocked out. They knocked out England. They beat Argentina. I repeat, they beat Argentina with Lionel Messi, an Argentina team with Lionel Messi, Di Maria, Aguero. They beat them, and when they were playing France, I had a bad feeling they were going to lose because the French looked way too good. Despite them losing to the French, they unanimously got the world's respect. Everyone just loved them because they were like, you weren't supposed to be here. You weren't supposed to make it this far, but you did. You proved us wrong. And when those players, Croatian players, went back to Croatia, they were celebrated like heroes. They weren't celebrated like losers. They are celebrated like heroes. They were worshipped. Like, you will never see that Croatian team ever again. That's it. And to really sink that in, you realize that this soccer shit, it really... You sometimes only have one shot. And with Croatia, what they've done is give hope, has given hope to a small country that they could occupy a, a large foothold if they just went all in. If they just went all in and said, fuck it, just go in. And that's that. I found that incredibly powerful for in 2018 was the story of Croatia. And a really good story of redemption when it comes to the World Cup is Zinedine Zidane's story in 2006. In 1998, Zidane won the World Cup. Well, not Zidane. France won the World Cup in France. And Zidane, I think, scored two goals in that final. And in 2002, people were thinking, okay, they just won the 2,000 Euros. They won the Euros in 2000. 2002 World Cup in Korea, they, they got to kill it. They didn't even get out the group stage. They, f- they failed miserably. 2006 comes along. 2006 World Cup was in Germany. And this French team was already considered out. Like, no one gave them hope. They, there was not a lot of hype, not a lot of confidence, because all their star players are old. You know, Claude Makaleli, Zinedine Zidane, Barthez was old as well. And there was a Patrick Vieira. He was also old. Thierry Henry was... I, wa- I rewatched some of those games. He wasn't the most impressive, I would say. He was always offside. But all these, play- all these things to say that if you look at the core player, the best players, they're all in 30s and plus, the wrong side of 30. In the beginning, before the, the tournament happened, everyone said, this France team is probably going to make it around 16, and then that's it. They're out. But they made it to the final. They've beaten every single powerhouse on their way to the final. You know, They beat Portugal. They beat Spain. They beat Brazil. Then they play Italy at the final, and they lose to Italy. But fine, because Italy is really fucking good, so you can't really hate on that. But the redemption comes in in Zidane's story. He had a bad rap throughout his career for being short-tempered, always kind of getting to trouble on the field, not off the field, on the field. And he decided to retire that year, 2006. He played his last game in Madrid. He was sent off like a hero. And people said, okay, his legs are done. He's tired. He can't. There's no way he can consistently play amazing throughout the World Cup. It's super demanding physically. And yet this man made every single 
the defensive line of the best teams look like they're amateurs. This man of 34 years old who is way past his prime and he's dancing around Brazilians. You don't dance around Brazilians. Brazilians dance around you and he's dancing around them. I encourage you to watch that game. It's incredible. And yet he did it. And it was what makes it all crazier was that the World Cup, that was his last competitive game as a professional player. That meant that that World Cup final was his last ever professional game as a player. And he went out with a bang, with a literal bang. He headbutted, he headbutted Matarazzi to the chest. He goes down, he gets red carded, and France loses the World Cup. And if Zidane had stayed on that pitch and not lose his temper, they would have won. So some people say, well, where's the redemption in that? I mean, he just, he's kind of the reason why France lost. And the redemption I see is he proved the critics wrong. He says, I don't, despite my age and despite some of the controversies around me, I could still play at a high level. Who, who has that kind of ego to decide that the World Cup, the World Cup final, is going to be my last professional game? That's incredibly powerful. And he's proved people wrong. Despite that one incident at the World Cup final, people still celebrate him and love him. Not just because of what he did in the World Cup, but what he represents. You don't give up that indomitable spirit of just keep going. He's redeemed himself again today by winning four Champions League straight. Was it four? Yeah, he's won four Champions Leagues as a coach with Real Madrid. Was it four? No, it's three. Yeah, it's four. One was an assistant coach. The other three was a full-time coach. I'm forgetting the numbers. But, it, but even to this day, he's been retired for over 10 years, and people still talk about him as if he played yesterday. That's how much of an impact he's left. That's how much of a hole he's left in the soccer world that despite that one negative action of violence at the World Cup final, he still... He still He's redeemed himself by just being loved, by being remembered. People would say nostalgic, but if you just see the way he plays, it's fucking artistry. It's any soccer player would tell you that th there's an elegance to his game. There's a precision to his game that just, it's, it's so attractive and it's, it's elegant. I, that, that's the only word I could put is it's incredibly elegant. And it's, I feel like I'm going in circles just because that's how much I love this guy. Like you got to watch him. He's go on YouTube, watch him. He's so much fun to watch. Another story I want to share was, this one's about hope. It's a 2010 World Cup. And, but in 2010, I want to talk about is Ghana. Because in 2010, it was the first time that the World Cup has come to Africa, in South Africa. It was a very big deal. I've never seen such marketing. The marketing for the Brazil and Russia World Cup pales in comparison to the marketing that was put into the South African World Cup. It was, they got Shakira came on. Now Shakira's become the fucking spokesperson of the World Cup. She sings at every World Cup song now. But the music that was produced for the 2010 World Cup is probably the best World Cup music I've ever heard. There's Kanan, uh, Waving Flag, that famous song. And then the, the Waka Waka song by Shakira. Every time someone, if I hear it at a bar, you, you cannot feel happy when you hear that song. It's such, a, it's such an empowering, uplifting, fun song, and it's lighthearted. And it's, you know, that's, how, that's how you should play the sport, really. And everyone is rooting for an African team to win in Africa. You know, Africa is kind of, in people's minds, culturally and politically and economically will forever be underdogs. That continent is, for whatever reason, always seen as underdogs. I don't necessarily see it like that, but I understand why people do see it like that. And it's people just want to see an African team win. I want to see an African team win the World Cup. And 2010 was a good chance because Ghana made it to a quarterfinal. South Africa got knocked out. Nigeria got knocked out. I'm trying to think of the other African teams got no that got knocked out. Morocco? No, Algeria, I think, got knocked out. But anyway, Ghana made its quarterfinal. Their last, Ghana was the last African team. 
and they were playing Uruguay. Uruguay was very hot. They had uh, Diego Forlan, Luis Suarez, and Edison Cavani as a front three. There was a handball by Luis Suarez. He gets red carded. And Ghana missed their pen- one of the penalty shots in a penalty shootout. They lose their penalty in a penalty shootout. But I remember what I remember the most is sitting at a bar and everyone at the bar was supporting Ghana. They just, we just, people wanted to see an African team make it far. People want to see an African team win it in Africa. It didn't happen for Ghana, and that's too bad because uh, they were an inspiring team. But I think what was the most powerful thing about that is you will never, you will seldomly see that in other continents, but you legitimately saw an entire continent that is the continent of Africa completely mobilized and support as a country. They all just, everybody, there was no more regional beefs if, if there ever was. And everyone just put their eggs on Ghana. They lost, but they they didn't lose miserably. They lost with a lot of pride. They they lost as any team should lose, which was with a lot of pride. You held up head held held up high, and yeah, you made one or two mistakes, but that happens. You know, it, it's, some things are out of your control. And and when you see so many people just rally behind this one underdog team to play against Uruguay, you 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 know you you got to pay attention to the story of hope. Especially in a time where when you thought of Africa, you didn't think of hope. And that World Cup, I think, single-handedly changed the perception of that. I mean, I'm saying this as an outsider. When people think of Africa as an outsider, they always think of like a National Geographic documentary or some like Christian children's fun like donation. But my experience of Africa and African people is completely different. And that's not that's not what my uh, I don't think that's fair. But seeing how everyone supported Ghana and just wanted to see the ultimate underdog, really, win at that World Cup. It's kind of cool to see that. And it's it's a good story. It really is. There's one more point. There's one more story about hope and redemption that, I, not redemption, but hope that I want to hit on is uh, the story of uh, N'Golo Kante. He's a pro player. He plays in Chelsea. He plays for Chelsea. But he has a, a very meteor, not a meteorite. He had a very sharp incline in his career. I guess that would be a nice way of putting it. So you have a guy, Angola Conte, born in France. I forget where in France. And he had a few tryouts for, for a couple professional clubs. But it never, it never worked out for him, as he said. He said it never worked out. No one really wanted him. He was either too short or too skinny. And no one really got it. And he was working a full-time job on the side until I think a second division French team took a chance on him. And he started playing regularly. I'm giving you a fast track of his story. And at some point, some team in England called Leicester, Leicester City, signs him. The scouts identified him as a perfect player for the system they want to play under... Uh... Oh, man, I'm completely forgetting his name. Ranieri, Claudio Ranieri. And that year, Leicester City won the Premier League. For those who don't understand that, that's, uh, that's impossible. The Leicester City is like a... Before them, them winning the league, they were a nothing team. They were nobodies. They were constantly in the lower divisions. They occasionally come up to the premiership but rarely and they just they won the odds were 3,000 to 1 against them like they weren't supposed to win that wasn't supposed to happen that was not a part of the script but in 2016 they won the premier league and Golo Kante was a pivotal part of that of that team of as to why they win he plays center mid so he transitions from defense to attack so he's the first line of defense and a first wave of attack and he does it so well because he doesn't stop running like he has the most incredible cardio and it turns out according to some people he's apparently one of the nicest guys you can ever meet so 2016 he wins the world cup i mean it was 2016 he wins the premier league rather and 
And then they go, to, I think that was the same year that the Euros happened. And then they, yeah, that was the Euros in France. And they lost the final to Portugal. And in 2018, he wins the World Cup with France. His career, technically, his, like, his superstar career only started four years ago, where most players, they've started 10, 20 years ago, and they've yet have not won anything major. But this guy has, has won two major trophies, potentially three with Chelsea or with France in the Euros. And that's incredible. Like, this guy was a nobody. He, like, no one knew who he was. He was just working as a construction worker or some shit like that. And, and now he, a World Cup winner. I mean, that's, if that isn't the story of hope, then I don't know what is. It's, it's, it's incredible. It's, it's, that's, that's what humility and hard work will get you. I think that was my, that's what I took out from this story. You work hard, you understand what are your limits and what you need to improve on, and you just keep going at it. Never thinking that just because you've reached the next level doesn't make you a god. These are the reasons why soccer fans love the World Cup. We want to watch our favorite players play. I mean, like, on this, on this 2014 magazine, you have, you know, Wayne Rooney, Neymar, and Cristiano Ronaldo, the three Nike superstars, the Nike superstars of the time. You know, if you're a Portuguese, you want to watch Cristiano Ronaldo kill it. And if you're English, you want to see what Rain, Wayne Rooney could do on that global stage. Or if you're Brazilian, you want to see what Neymar could do to show that this is our country's greatest and this is what we can do and this is how we can compete. But underneath that competitive spirit and the, uh, the patriotism, it, it is these themes of underdog stories, global politics being flipped, that you as a small country, you have a chance to compete with the bigger boys in the real world, if you will. Like, how often do, does Croatia get to fight the United States and beat the United States? Never. And yet soccer creates that space where it is possible. If you do come from, from a small country, that must, you must feel proud. You must feel happy. It's like, yeah, like, we could do it. You know, there's, there's a path that's there. And it requires hard work, maybe even a little corruption, a little money here and there. Who knows? But it's, it's there. And that's the reason why I love the sport is those walls sometimes just melt away for a moment. And if you don't catch on to that broken wall, you might not get through ever again. And a lot of these people at the World Cup, when they see those broken walls of, of our opportunity just to make it through the next round, they're going to take it. And that's what Croatia did in 2018. When you observe the World Cup as an event from the outside, you realize that the soccer community is actually unified, that we're all in this together. We're all in this as a family. We're here to enjoy ourselves. We're here to see the best things out of humanity, not so much the ugliness that we see in the news when it comes to politics and economics. But in soccer, it you feel inspired. It's, it's undeniable how inspired you would feel or how good you would feel. Some people will say that, oh, that's just patriotism. But I encourage you for a moment sometimes to forget about the country and just look at the story. I think it's it's far more enjoyable to watch soccer based on these narratives that happened before the game, in the game, and after the game. You know, sometimes I always wonder, how did this player and so-and-so turn out? You know, Renato Sanchez, Portuguese player, had incredible 2016 uh, Euros. I wonder what happened to him because he kind of dropped off from the face of the earth, which he's still playing professionally, but you don't hear from him anymore. You don't even see him on a Portuguese national team. I'll just say, don't watch the Olympics. <laughs> don't watch the Olympics. <laughs> watch the World Cup. I love it. It's fun. I mean, it gets deeper emotionally, but if ever you do watch the World Cup, watch the stories, watch the narratives, support the underdogs. They're always fun. Even if the underdogs are the United States, they're still worth watching. And also, 
watch the fans. Just watch the fans. Even if you go to a bar and you see real World Cup fans, just watch, just watch them. Watch how they get upset or watch how they get happy or what, whatever emotion. Because I guarantee you, you will never see them replicate those emotions ever again. Very rarely, rather. I watch soccer mostly for the fans because I think it's so much fun to watch these people come to, these complete strangers come together and really worship a bunch of other 11 strangers kicking a ball around. You know what I mean? And that creates such a intense feeling. As someone who used to go to church, that, that, that feeling is, does become very intense. And I see that in soccer and I find that uncanny. Anyway, so that's the World Cup. It's a weird tournament and it's fun. And it's definitely worth watching. So from Montreal, thank you. I'm Jason Kim.